here. Welcome to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. And today, I actually want to talk about something I get questions about all the time, and that's the working properties of wood. How do I know how this species of wood will work? Well, the answer is actually pretty straightforward in a roundabout way. You see, all of the species, I shouldn't say all the species, most of the species are going to have a lot of technical specifications attached to them. And a little bit of Googling of a species, you'll, you'll be able to find things like hardness. A lot of people, this one's most familiar, um, otherwise known as the Janka hardness test, tells you exactly how hard a, a piece of wood is. There's also things like porosity and density, crushing strength, match, max crushing strength, um, bending strength, stiffness, otherwise known as modulus of elasticity. Bending strength is also modulus of rupture. And a bunch of other technical specifications, you'll find them all over the place. The difficulty is, is there's a bunch of numbers associated with these that kind of don't make any sense. In many instances, those numbers are so huge that you just can't really fathom what they mean. In other instances, depending on the species you're looking for and where it, it generally is harvested, you'll find differences in the units. So for instance, Janka hardness is something most people are familiar with. In North America, we're finding that value as pounds per square inch. In Europe, it's going to be listed in newtons. You'll find it in even other dimensions elsewhere in the world. So it's important when you're looking at these numbers to make sure you recognize what those units are. You may not even understand what those units mean, because what I want to get across to everyone is that it's not really about the numbers, but it's about the differences in the numbers. And I've spent a lot of time kind of working through this and figuring out how I can compare one species to another and in effect be able to answer the question, how will this wood work or what is, what is this wood like to work with without ever seeing it just by comparing it to species that I already know. All of us have some experience with some species. Maybe it's pine, maybe it's cherry, maybe it's some other strange, unusual species, you know, Australian yellow cypress, yellow cedar or something like that. That may be kind of your go-to species of wood, and you know how well it's going to saw, both power tool, hand tool, plane, etc. Well, you can look at the numbers on that particular species and compare it to some unknown species. And this is at the core of what I'm talking about. Kind of like the episode I did on grading. You don't have to truly understand all the nitty gritty about the grades, but just the basics to help you understand what kind of lumber you're gonna be able to get when you go to the lumber yard. In this case, you need to understand just the basics of these technical specs and just a few of the ones that you need to pay attention to and, and really the, the ones that you can just ignore because they're not really going to be relevant in what you're talking about. So I think the top three things to think about when you're looking at, um, and I'm going I'm to say an unknown species of wood, I don't mean unknown as in I don't know what this species is and I have to identify this. You need to at least know what that species is so you can then go and look up, Google the, the technical specification numbers. This is not an episode about identifying what wood is this? It's more about here is a piece of cherry. Here is a piece of grenadillo. How does grenadillo work? How does cherry work? So the three technical specs that you really need to look at are hardness. This is Janka hardness as it's sometimes just listed as Janka. Most of the time it's listed as hardness. There is density, which is very similar to hardness, but there's some nuances there. 
Porosity is important. This will tell you right away, first of all, is it a hardwood or is it a softwood? And how are those pores? The way I like to look at it is not so much the pores, but dead space in the structure. How are those pores organized and how big are they? Another thing to look at, and this is especially important if you are um, more of a hand tool user, if you're going to be doing any hand planing, that's shearing strength. And then finally, the movement. What is the movement like tangentially? That is across the grain. What is the movement like radially? And that's when you're talking about a quarter sawn piece. And taken together, what is the tangential to radial ratio? In other words, how anisotropic is that wood? Wood is not isotropic, meaning that it doesn't move the same in all directions. It moves differently in different directions. It moves more across the grain than it does along, than, than I should say, it moves more across the grain than it does perpendicular to grain along the radial dimension. So you get this anisotropic relationship creating a ratio. And in many instances, you'll find that it's going to vary wildly from one species to another, the ideal would be one-to-one, -one, which would be isotropic. You're not going to find a lot of woods that are isotropic, but understanding what that means, this particular species is one-to-three, this particular species is one-to-six, well, then the latter species is going to move more than the... Um, the one to three, and therefore you can end up with a little bit more uh, warping or cupping as the species is dried or as it acclimates. Um, later, we can start talking about modules of elasticity. That again is stiffness. We can talk about modules of rupture or bending strength as you're starting to think about maybe span. Can it handle this particular span? Or I'm actually going to be doing some bending, some steam bending, some, some bent lamination. How will it handle that? Or maybe you're not doing any bending at all. Maybe you're doing something that's going to be under stress. The most basic example would be I'm making a bow and arrow or I'm creating a paddle or an oar for a boat. And what kind of bending strength do I have? Moreover, what kind of stiffness will I have on that oar as I'm running it through the water? Finally, crushing strength is the one I'm going to look at. Um, so let's kind of go back to the beginning here. Um, hardness. That, I think, is the first thing that most people look at. Uh, the Jenka test is taking a, a steel ball, we'll just call it a half inch in diameter. It's, I think, 0.444, what it actually is. But taking that half inch steel ball, the amount of force that's required to embed that half inch steel ball half an inch into the face of the wood. Now, this is done on a flat sawn board. So this is a face grain we're talking about. You're going to find a lot of different numbers here. Uh, cherry is about 860 pounds per square inch. Walnut, 920, 950-ish. Uh, white oak, about 1,500. Hard maple, about 1,500 as well. You're going to find out all over the place up to things like Ipe at 3,800 pounds per square inch. Lignum vitae, which I think is still probably the hardest wood in the world, uh, about 4,800 pounds per square inch. Now, again, you're going to find this number in newtons also, and that's going to be a very different number from what you would find in pounds per square inch. So if you are, say, examining Brazilian cherry or jatoba against black cherry, American black cherry, Prunus serotina, sometimes you may have to do some unit conversion and that's where good old Google can come into play and just, or, or heck, pick up your iPhone and ask Siri <laughs> how to convert from pounds per square inch to newtons and vice versa. But the idea being 
for instance, I work with cherry a lot. I know really well how easy it is to chop mortises in cherry, how easy it is to plane cherry, how easy it is to saw cherry. And I've got a good understanding of what 850 pounds per square inch Janka hardness means. So when I pick up a piece of hard maple and I see that hard maple is is more than twice as hard as cherry, right away I know, ooh, chopping a mortise in this or doing any kind of chopping or even sawing on this is going to be a lot harder on me and a lot harder on my tools. It doesn't really matter what that number is, but the ratio, almost, almost three to one, but it's definitely more than two to one from hard maple to cherry. But if I'm looking at red maple or soft maple and I see 860 or so compared to my my 850 for cherry, I think, all right, well, these work very similarly. I know what cherry is like. So this is the, the first place to start. You have to understand what is your go-to wood? What is the go-to species? And, and know what those numbers are. So Jenka is probably the, the one that most people look at, and it is really of direct relevance to um, woodworkers who... Are going to be chopping into things using chisels against things even using power tools if you're using a powered mortiser it requires a lot more effort to bore a hole in maple than it does in cherry and you can feel that just pulling down on the handle of that mortiser or just boring through it with a forstner bit you will feel the resistance on the the quill as you're pushing down on that drill press density is going to be, and uh, you know what, I'm going to actually lump density and specific gravity together. They are not the same before the scientists start jumping down my throat, but you will oftentimes find, uh, say you look up on one site and you'll see density listed and you look on another site and you won't see density, but you'll see specific gravity. And in many instances, they are interchangeable. Again, the number isn't really important. It's the ratio of the number. And it's similar to hardness because certainly uh, the more dense something is, the harder it's going to be to push that half inch steel ball into the wood. But the important part to the, the differentiator here is you can have a wood that's particularly hard, but it actually can be of, of a lower density. So again, if we were to take um, mahogany, say, and hard maple, there's a pretty big uh, hardness difference there from 1400 to about 900 in the in the genuine mahogany. The density of maple is pretty well it's not super high, and I'm not even going to get into the numbers here because, again, you're going to find some variance depending on how it was tested. But the density between mahogany <clears throat> and hard maple is within 0.4 of one another. So what, what does that really mean? And we, anybody who's worked with genuine mahogany, work with hard maple, knows that genuine mahogany is a lot easier to work, yet the densities are close to the same. And this is because genuine mahogany has some larger pores. There's more dead air in the wood. So the stuff that's left, the, the, the material, the, the, the lignin that's in, that forms the stuff around the pores is actually quite hard. But you'll find that the Janko hardness is quite a bit lower because the, the dead air in there allows the whole thing to feel a, a lot easier to chop against. Vice versa, you'll find um, a species like Winge that is actually quite hard. And you know what? Off the top of my head, I'm not sure what that hardness is. I think it's 12 or 1300. Doesn't really matter in this particular instance, but you'll find that the hardness is quite a bit harder, yet the density is quite low. 
because there are really big pores in there and the way they're ordered together means that it actually feels a lot easier to chop into wingay than it does into something like hard maple. At the same time, that lower density means that the wood could actually be more prone to splitting and more prone to kind of crumbling away or splintering. And anybody who's worked with wingue knows that if you look at it wrong, you're gonna get splinters from across the room. And that can be told by that lower density, especially when you compare density to hardness. So while they are kind of in a direct relationship with one another, you will find that it can be particularly telling if you compare one species to another. So if you've got two species of similar Janka hardness, but you're like, man, this one is a lot harder to work, more than likely you're gonna find a difference in density. Moreover, if say you're in a part of the world like Australia, where just about all the woods are super hard on the Janka scale, you can look for species with a lower density and find that they are a lot easier to work. Even though the fibers themselves are quite hard, because there's more dead air, because there's a less dense surface, you will find that it feels easier and the resultant hardness is actually quite a bit lower. Now I talked about porosity, so let's let's move on to that. Um, Hardwoods have pores. They really can either be ring porous, diffuse porous, or semi-ring porous. Perfect example of a ring porous wood is red oak. It's got really large pores and they are all clumped together in very specific rings. The early growth wood of, of red oak and the early in the spring, it grows very, very fast and it's got very, very wide open pores and all those pores are grouped together in that ring. In between those groups of, of pores is the late wood and it is quite dense. The um, hardness of red oak is about 12, 1290 something pounds per square inch. Compare that to white oak, that is also ring porous, but the pores themselves are smaller, and actually the pores are filled with something called tylose, which is what makes white oak good for exterior and red oak not for uh, exterior purposes. But you'll find that that difference in pore size actually makes quite a bit of difference in the hardness. The hardness of white oak is about 250 pounds per square inch harder than red oak because the pores of red oak are quite a bit larger, making more dead air, more space or lower density in the wood. Moreover, that highly ordered ring porous structure means that ring porous woods split incredibly easily. If you were to drop a fro or an ax or a wedge right on that ring porous line, it will unzip and pop apart right down that pore line very, very easily. Now this can also mean if you're looking for something that is, you wanna bend something, steam bend something, you can actually rive along those pore lines and end up with very, very strong bent structures because you can just remove those big wide open pores, leaving that dense um, in-between material on the other side of it. Now diffuse porous woods are the pores are scattered all over. They're, they're kind of evenly spaced throughout the piece. Now, the size of the pore is going to tell you a lot there. If it has wide open pores and it's, it's evenly scattered, you will find that the density is actually quite a bit lower. Usually though, with a lot of diffuse porous woods, you have very small pores scattered all over the place. A good example would be cherry or maple. These are both pretty hard woods. Compare American black cherry to American walnut. 
American walnut is actually a semi-ring porous wood. Just means it's kind of in between. It has well-ordered rings of pores. And then there's kind of this like, almost like the pores kind of spilled over the edge and kind of splattered into the um, the non-pore section. So you will find a couple of pores here and there in, in, in between those rings. But for the most part, black walnut is going to have a pore structure. Now they have almost identical Janka hardnesses. But because the pores in cherry are quite a bit smaller and they're spread all over the place, cherry feels a lot harder to chop a mortise in than walnut. Substantially harder, even though that hardness is almost the same within 10 pounds per square inch of one another. So just understanding that pore structure and the size of those pores can tell you a lot about how hard it's going to feel to work that wood. So you don't have to necessarily get into the exact size of the pores and the exact ordering of the pores, but just taking a look at it, if you've got wide, big, big pores, there's going to be a lot more dead air in there. And that's going to mean that the whole density of the piece is going to be lower. It's also going to mean that the fibers themselves have a little bit more give so or more compression is a good way to look at it if you've ever cut dovetails with really hard species and you find that you know i need to remove the line or split the line because there's very little compression going on here whereas if i cut dovetails and something soft like pine there's a lot of compression there i can pretty much leave the line in my dovetails and just whack them together with a mallet and the wood will compress nicely there's a slightly different structure going on there because softwoods don't have pores, but so maybe that's a bad example. Um, walnut dovetails can go together with a mallet and compress a lot more than hard maple dovetails or Brazilian cherry dovetails or, or, or any other jungle wood that has very, very small pores that are diffuse porous. So that, that ability to compress means there's just less dead air in the structure. There's less, if you were to squeeze that board, you're squeezing those pores shut. And with big wide open pores, there's a lot more space for that board to compress into. With very small pores, there's very little space and therefore the wood itself just does not compress very much. If you have a ring porous, highly ordered structure compared to a diffuse porous, you'll find that the compression can be a lot more predictable because all the pores are closely ordered together. So paying attention to that porosity, how the pores are ordered and the size of the pores can tell you a lot about how hard that wood is going to feel, how easy it is going to be compressed from one or another as you're assembling a joint and how easy or hard it's going to be to plane which brings me to shearing strength shearing strength is the force along the grain so if you run a hand plane over the surface and you're peeling up a shaving you are shearing away that top layer however thick that layer is the force to shear that away is the shearing strength and you can look at those numbers from one to another and you can learn a lot about how hard it is going to feel to shear this away now it's important you recognize there's a difference between shearing and splitting if you're splitting something that this is this is a very different action than shearing usually shearing is, is happening with a straight knife and it's it's a thinner piece that's being sheared away but a good example of this is hard maple <clears throat> the hard maple shearing strength is very 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 high and when you compare it to um white oak for example they have very similar hardness janka numbers they have very similar density numbers they are definitely um 
white oak being ring porous, maple being diffuse porous, and that can contribute to the higher shearing strength. So you see how all these numbers start to interplay with one another. Because the pores are scattered all over the place and are diffuse in a piece of maple, there's a lot more of that really dense connective tissue that makes the shearing strength dramatically higher. If you put a piece of hard maple on your bench and a piece of white oak next to it, take the exact same plane, make a pass on the maple and a pass on the white oak, you will find a marked difference in how much easier white oak is to plane as compared to hard maple. Or how much faster your blade will dull in the hard maple than it will in the white oak. That's the shearing strength we're talking about. This number in particular is like ridiculously high in pounds per square inch to the point where it makes no sense whatsoever. So again, focus on the ratio of this species versus that species and what are the numbers. And if you know how easy or how hard it is to play in this particular species and the unknown one you're looking at is twice the shearing strength, beware. <laughs> it's going to be very hard to play in that particular board. So we know that wood moves, right? And we know that it's going to move more tangentially along the growth rings than it is radially perpendicular to the growth rings. That's why we use quarter sawn boards when we want a really stable piece because it's expanding and contracting across the thickness, the smaller dimension there. These numbers are measured in a, in a percent. Six percent is the movement tangentially of uh, um, black cherry. So you can look at that and compare it to the 2% of the radial movement and you have a 6 to 2 or what is that? 3 to 1 <laughs> TR ratio. And that's going to be pretty standard with a lot of North American hardwoods. But as you start to get into some of the jungle woods, um, Ipe, for example, is nearly isotropic. It's, uh, it's like 1.105. It expands and contracts almost the same radially as it does tangentially. Look at something like beach and you'll find that it's like one to eight. There's actually, beach is actually quite unstable, which is what I always found interesting that so many hand planes are made out of European beach because it's not really a very stable wood. Um, so just looking at this, you, you're going to find that the number differences are not so dramatic. And again, the smaller the part size is because wood is, is a percentage game. The smaller that piece is, the less it's really going to move. But it is something to think about if you're looking for a, a particular species of wood that's going to be very stable. If you know it's going to be in an extreme environment, like an exterior piece that has a lot of heating and cooling throughout the day, aka a deck, you know, sun on one face all day long, shade on the other face all day long, wet on one face, dry on the other face, that, that's hell on wood. That's one of the reasons that many of these tropical species like Ipe and Kumaru are very good decking species because their TR ratio is nearly equal. They're nearly isotropic. So that's something to take a look at. Also, just knowing what those numbers are as you're doing calculations in your shop, say I'm making a frame and panel door, you need to figure out how much is that panel going to move so that I make sure I make the grooves in that frame and panel and the frame deep enough so that the panel doesn't expand out or excuse me, um, shrink out of the groove, leaving a gap later on. So now we come to the extra credit, if you will. Modulus of elasticity or stiffness and modulus of rupture or bending strength. These two are numbers measured in like the millions of pounds per square inch. Again, the, the numbers mean absolutely nothing. But if you are building a workbench, say you're building a Rubo workbench where the legs go right into the other side of the top and you've got a long span in between, it's important to understand what the stiffness is like in the species you're using. Douglas fir has a very high stiffness. Well, Douglas fir, coincidentally, is used for timber framing a great deal because it is very stiff 
stiff and it's able to to span long distances. It makes great timber frame pieces, in other words. Uh, white oak, you'll find, is, is the same thing. So understanding what that stiffness is and, and understanding what kind of span that you need to cover. And, and usually in this particular case, and this is why I call this extra credit, because needing to know this number is much less important than the things that I've already talked about before. But if you are building something <clears throat> that is going to span a long distance, and the question is, do I need an intermediary support? Take a look at timber framing uh, tables, and you'll see a lot of load balance tables. You can Google timber framing tables and, and look at the numbers for the various timber frame species like oak and Douglas fir and see what kind of spans and what kind of loads those numbers can take, or excuse me, those species can take. Now compare it to the modulus of elasticity of the particular species you're looking at. And you can very easily kind of do some math and figure out the span that I'm looking for is perfectly fine. Now, for building furniture, usually this isn't really an issue. Uh, bookcases, it can be somewhat of an issue to think about uh, because of the, the, the static load of books and things and the possible span, you may come up with a larger bookcase. So it's very easy to, to look at the structural tables for timber frame species and actually do some math to tell you what that unknown species would be. It can be very, very beneficial. But modulus of elasticity also tells you how quickly will that piece um, spring back to a flat board. When there's amount of deflection on it, will it exert force heavily or lightly on its way back? So I used the example of, of a bow and arrow earlier. If I'm making a bow or say I'm making a spring pole lathe, I want something that's got uh, high stiffness that when I bend that piece, it's going to exert a substantial force as it straightens back out. It's going to give me, on a spring pole lathe, as I flex it, it's going to give me a lot of force on the, on the upstroke to allow that lathe to return or allow the treadle to return to the upper position for me to push down on it again. Same thing with a bow. The velocity of the arrow is not so much the strength that's required to bend the piece, but the strength as the bow straightens back out and it throws that arrow forward. So when you're building a bow and arrow, it's actually not about bending strength, but more about modulus of elasticity or stiffness. The force required, the force exerted on whatever you're throwing as the bow straightens back out. Now, that being said, you do want something with pretty good bending strength as well. So when you pull back that um, that arrow, you're not going to snap the bow in half. Same thing with a um, spring pole lathe. That high stiffness will mean nothing if you snap it as you as you bend the, uh, the, the spring pole. Now, this is going to change pretty dramatically depending upon how that piece is, is sawn or how that piece is riven. That's why when you're talking about Windsor chairs, we're talking about riving pieces and shaving down that, that bow or that arm right along the growth rings because you're going to get the strongest bending strength and highest stiffness by um, working along those lines, working along those growth lines. So both of those numbers tend to play off one another, but you will find examples where you've got high bending strength and low elasticity or low stiffness, which would not be good for something under dynamic force, but it could be very good for something you want to bend into a set shape, kiln dry it and leave it there, something like a Windsor bow where you want to bend it and you don't want it to spring back. Or if you're doing bent laminations and you're worried about that spring back, if you're using a species with high bending strength but low stiffness, you'll find that you will get very little spring back in there. And again, this all interrelates. You'll find that a lot of the, the outstanding high elasticity, high bending strength woods 
tend to be ring porous woods because of that highly ordered pore structure. Finally, crushing strength. This is the force along the grain. So imagine a table leg. As you push down on that table leg, right on the end grain, that's the amount of force it takes to actually crush those fibers. This number is astronomical. This is the strongest direction of the wood. And again, I, I lumped this at the end because it, for most intents and purposes, when we're building furniture, even a lot of, of, of larger like landscape structures and things, crushing strength is so far beyond anything that we ever would need that it's not really that important. You start getting into building bridges and things like that, occasionally doing some timber frame stuff, it's important to know how much that corner post, how much force that corner post can take on top of it, how much static and dynamic load it can take on top of it before the fibers start to crush. For most weekend woodworkers, this is a number that really is not important. And it's rare that you're gonna have a piece that's gonna have a lot of force uh, along the grain like that. And even if it does, over a shorter distance, you're going to have even greater strength because there's going to be less deflection along the grain. But it's important to know what crushing strength is. You're also going to find numbers like max crushing strength that show up. I would say pretty much ignore that specification um, unless you know you're going to be building some sort of load-bearing structure, a lot of load. In other words, bridge, <laughs> rooftop, something like that. There's more, obviously, there's all kinds of different technical specs out there, but that's just kind of a high level overview. And I would even say um, beyond the, the movement, the tangential radio percentage numbers, the, the MOE, MOR, uh, crushing strength are really things you don't really need to pay much attention to until you get into very specific use um, projects and, and utilization. Janka density, porosity, and shearing strength are kind of the ones that will really help you identify how one particular wood works over the other. Now, I've been talking about this for a long, long time, um, about using, comparing the one number to the other without really paying attention to what the number is. In fact, woodworking in America in 2016, I think, I actually taught a class uh, about working properties of wood. And I actually recorded that whole thing. It is available on my YouTube channel. The seminar was called Wood, what is it good for? And I go through this and I actually give a lot more specific examples. So I'm going to link to that particular video in the show notes of this. If you haven't seen that yet, I, I definitely advise you to check it out because it's one of those things where you basically can unlock the working properties of any species anywhere in the globe just by looking at those numbers and comparing it to something you already know. So if you do anything from this episode, think about what your go-to species of wood is and memorize those numbers. Memorize janka, density, porosity, and shearing strength and the, the TR ratio, and you'll be able to quickly look at another species, Google those technical specs, and get a pretty good idea of how easy or difficult it is going to be to work compared to your go-to species. So there we go. There's the 10,000 foot, 900 mile an hour view of technical properties of wood. Certainly there's a lot of all kinds of engineering equations and, and design values that are derived from these numbers. And if you really want to get into, into that heavy duty stuff, I recommend you actually look up the Forest Products Laboratory Handbook that really defines exactly what all these tests are, how they're measured, um, what size, what sample size is measured on all of them. You can find the Forest Products Laboratory um, handbook actually available in PDF format online. And you know what? I'll link to that in the show notes as well. So let me know if you have any questions on this. And um, hey, if nothing else, you can now wow your friends at the next cocktail party by being able to rattle off Jenkin numbers of any species under the sun. Thanks, everybody. 
We'll see you next time.